All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Pete Woods here, Beyond the Walls interview series. Today, I am talking with Bob Bergman. Um, you have had such an interesting arc through the Canadian climbing community, and I'm really happy to sit down and chat with you today and get some of your perspective on you know, where climbing was, you know, what you saw it transition through over the years that you've been involved. And where you see it now and, and, you know, your involvement in that process. And I think that uh, I think there's some really interesting perspective that you've got. And Joe Rockheads was and still is a pillar of originally the Toronto climbing community and then the Ontario climbing community and still the Canadian climbing community. I think that's probably the easiest place to start is what brought you to the decision of I think I'm going to build and open a climbing gym. Well, you know, it was probably naivety more than anything. I think Uh, when I first started, uh, I first started doing it. um, You know, I had really only climbed for a brief period. I started sort of climbing. I, you know, took like an introductory course, which was outdoors in the spring. I sort of, you know, got into climbing on my own, went and bought the own, my own equipment and, you know, climbed as much as I could all summer long. And as soon as uh, sort of winter came, then the, you know, I had nowhere to climb at that point. And so I, it was, I guess, sort of self-serving where I just thought, okay, I need to figure out some way to climb during the winter time. And I hadn't climbed long enough to know that people traveled. And would go south and go climbing where it was warm. So my thought was like, I need to kind of make something in my house. I need to make, uh, you know, uh, something in a garage, like some kind of bouldering cave, even before bouldering caves had come around. And, you know, I thought like, geez, my dad had an industrial space and I thought, geez, I'll build something there. And it kind of got to be like, well, geez, there must be other people would be interested in this kind of thing. Maybe I'll build something that's bigger and we can all kind of use it together and you know maybe I can get somebody to put some money in and then I kind of just thought well you know maybe if I built something even bigger I'll just I would charge them money I'll I'll build it and I'll charge people money and then then we can all have a place to climb and at the time I lived in London Ontario which is a pretty reasonably big sized town but um you know, I didn't think that that would work there. It just wasn't the population. And when I lived in London and I would drive to Rattlesnake Point, which is Milton, just outside of Toronto. So, you know, any rock climbers I ever saw, they were from Toronto themselves. So then my thought was like, okay, well, it has to be, if it's going to work or go, it's going to have to be done in Toronto. So I actually moved to Toronto and I found this, you know, a small sort of uh, old warehouse that had like 30 foot high ceilings and rented that space and then you know took a couple months my brother and i you know who had a bit of a carpentry background we went and just built it um and opened it up but you know we really what was you know some things that were great about it was that we had no idea what a climbing gym really was to look like um so we could you know which and no, unfortunately, no, neither did anybody else. No, I was going to say, but it's not like anyone else had something to compare it to. They weren't, no. no one was looking online and saying, I don't know, guys, you kind of blew it. Yeah, that was great because no one had any preconceived notions. So it was kind of hard for us to go wrong. Um, but the downside of that was we had to make everything up. 
Do you know what I mean? We had to kind right. of invent. I mean, I'd seen them in magazines. I'd seen like like competitive, um, you know, comp walls. Like Snowbird existed. Um, but even that's not that's not like the shining example of what climbing should look. I mean, I think the Snowbird wall is. Did it overhang at all? <laughs> it was dead vert, and they built that little square in the middle. One section it did. I had had this a bit a bit of a lip. Um, and then there, you saw, like in ma climbing magazine, some of the, um, you know, some of the European World Cups. So I kind of had an idea of what all that kind of looked like, and um, uh, th that was basically it, you know. But my my whole sort of thinking was was to make it sort of like it was like an indoor cliff, and it had uh, specific roots on it. It was like I didn't want to go and just plaster holds all over like at the mountain co-op in toronto they had a climbing wall so i saw, saw that uh, but it was just tiny it was just to try shoes and they just had holds plastered all over and i guess they would you know go in in the evenings and some of the staff and they would you know boulder i guess is what we call it now. i guess that's the only thing you could say that they were doing they were just sort of moving back yeah, and forth in a very small space problems up right so, but my idea, what I thought was like, I'm going to make real roots like they do in the comp, the comps, because I kind of, I really like the aesthetic of that as well. Like I like the, you know, like this blank wall with this ribbon of, of holds um, running up it. And so I kind of wanted to mimic that inside the climbing gym. So, you know, you'd go, you'd go there and it would just be like a five, nine, five tens, whatever. And and you know it would be an established route we'd constantly change them around which is essentially what it is but nowadays but you know uh you know i didn't want to put roots over top of each other that mm -hmm. kind of thing which i had, hadn't even thought that you would do that really at that at that point. like why would you ever need to have that many roots in one place <laughs> of course of course of course right and so and even the funny thing is is like we would go and put the root up and I mimicked it like outdoors, whereas if you if you were the first ascensionist of that route, you got to give it a name. Like we had this whiteboard with a name when you could name it and then you could give it a grade. And then, you know, as more people climbed it, some of the grades would get adjusted. But but like outdoors, it was a consensus grade and, and it had a, a name. And the funny thing is, is like after a while, the names just became you know, so outlandish and you know how, where that would go with rock. <laughs> we weren't the most appropriate community back in the nineties. We, we had, we've learned a lot. So uh, maybe not all the names were suitable for the whiteboard at one point. Exactly. And they sort of, you know, became sort of, yeah, it, it ended up, we had to get rid of that eventually because that <laughs> game. Cause we can't be trusted. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like where, where it just started. And like, I, I you know, Really, the whole idea uh, uh, of it was I really wanted a place for myself to climb in the wintertime. Um, you know, my thought was if I could make enough money to keep it open and, and I didn't have to work somewhere else, then that would be like a, a really big success. Uh, and, you know, I thought, OK, if this can go for a, a year or two and, you know, keep plugging along a little bit, then that's what more could I ask for. And that was really my ultimate goal was to just have a place to climb all the time and maybe hopefully not have to go to work somewhere else. And it's, it's kind of amazing that, I mean, that's the definition of necessity being the motherhood of invention. You're like, man, it's cold here. I guess yeah. I'll build something other. I'm going to get a lot tougher 
and still yeah. go to Rattlesnake Point in December, which is, I mean, in, if you don't know Ontario, you're not doing that. Yeah, no, um, or it's, hard. I'm going to build a place and go inside. And um, instead of just sort of suffering through, like, I mean, people have been doing for years before we had climbing gyms, it's like, I guess I'll just try and do other things to stay in shape. And as you say, yeah. people that had the means would go south. And if you yeah. knew where to go and, you know, it was, you basically, you, you came out of the crucible of things were not so easy. There was no online this, the community was small, but also, you know, it was small. So there's advantages and disadvantages to having yeah. a, a small crew of people. And one of them is it, it's not very big. And, you know, it wasn't, it would be quite the endeavor to just pack up and drive to Joshua Tree from yeah. Windsor. <laughs> Yeah, that I mean, that kind of, you know, I didn't even realize at the time that that was possible. And had, perhaps had I discovered that and gone down that road, then no climbing gym would have been, you know, what what, what was what would have come out of it. But it was just, uh, you know, I just had this idea and and I think it was I didn't know wasn't smart enough to know not to do it. Yeah. And and just went ahead with it. And, uh, you know, I was I was 28 at the time, so I really had nothing to lose. And I, I really didn't have a lot going on at the time. And then I just had discovered climbing and loved it. And, and so, you know, that's that's just where I went and didn't look back. Yeah, that's kind of it. And, and I think we, you know, whether by happenstance or not, the, we all owe you a pretty big debt of, of deciding to take that on, even if, as you say, it was for your own means you kept it going. So you yeah. like, you know, this is a thing and I'm going to keep doing this. And the effort that it takes to put in, I mean, you open a climb gym in the nineties, you are, um, you're a carpenter, you're a yeah. root setter, you're a marketing yeah. major, you're a bookkeeper. Like yeah. it's, a, there's a, as soon as it becomes an endeavor, you have to do a lot of things that make it not so fun. Yes. And that's, I mean, I think that's the best way to, to ruin your hobby is to do it for a living. You know, yeah, absolutely. Mean? Um, you know, and certainly when we, when we first opened it, I mean, I remember the day, like, you know, we built it, we tried and did a little bit of guerrilla marketing. Uh, and then, you know, we sort of had a grand opening where it was free for the first day. And I remember, you know, that day it was 10 o'clock in the morning, we were going to open and, and it was like a solid door. You couldn't see outside where we were and like unlocking the door and opening the door. And there was people there. And I'm just like, what? You were a bit surprised. You were kind of happy, but also a bit surprised. Yeah. And it was just because that was that was really it. That was, you know, it was that was do or die at that point. And um, yeah. And then I was just couldn't believe the amount of people that were, were, were into it. And I was just like, OK, wow, this is this is going to go. This is going to work. It's going to be uh, a thing. But but you're right. Like, you know, uh, you know, we would root set like at that time we'd open at four in the afternoon and we would root set in the mornings. Um, and then we would open up at four and even we did beginner lessons too as well. And there's so, certainly no way to schedule them. We didn't know when people would come and just if somebody came, uh, and wanted a beginner lesson, if they had two people, then one of us, it would be me and my, or my brother, uh, one of us would just, you know, we would go in the back and Rochambeau or it was like, <laughs> I just Who has to teach these guys how to belay and not hit the floor in our gym? Yeah, and and you know, and, and then we, you know, that's how we, then one of us would go and you know do it, and then then in the evenings, like even if it got late, like around nine or ten o'clock, if, if 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 things slowed down, we would go in the back and, and go climbing ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and, and just keep an eye on the, on the front counter. So, you know, like I said, like that was the goal was just to do as much rock climbing as possible. And, and even like we would go in the summertime when the gym would be slower, we would go rock climbing outdoors till, and then rush, jump in the car and rush back, to, you know, to get to the gym at four o'clock to open up. I'm a hundred percent. I've done that when I, when I managed the gym in Ottawa, I remember like screaming into the parking lot, like yeah. parking sideways to a, a fairly good sized lineup of people, like looking at their watches saying, you're 15 minutes late. I'm like, sorry, like hands still chalky from, yeah. you know, having been climbing in Lustville for the day, but it was strangely okay. Like there's something about that where people just let you be like, Hey, people came in and, and I remember coming back and I'm sure you did the same thing. You're, you come back around to the front and you're like, Oh, there's a, there's 20 bucks on the desk and two new people that yeah. I didn't see come in. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're showing our age there, but that's to me is the glory days. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. that's kind of like, you know, that's just how the mentality of rock climbing was. That's, you know, one of the great, you know, things about the whole rock climbing community, I, I think, is it's just attracts this super unique personality. Um, and I've always thought that, that you know, and, and like, I think like just how lucky I was to stumble across into this community, really had no idea. And, and you know, the fact that I got to make a living, you know, by hanging out with these, these people uh, was just such, you know, is such a bonus. And the fact that, you know, I realized later on that like this is this is everybody's uh, what they've looked forward to all day. They've been at work. People have been being dicks to them. Uh, you know, finally they've they've got their couple hours that they want to do something. They're they're happy. They're psyched, and that's the time you get to spend working. Right? It was with them, and they're super pleased to see you. Everybody's happy. Everybody's psyched. And I was just like, wow, this is how lucky am I to stumble across this when I get to go and just hang out with people who are just super psyched and happy all the time. Yeah. And it's, it's a super supportive community and, and you got to, as you say, you get to see the best in people and people have, as they've been, they've been thinking about, I'm going to do that red and blue yeah. model that up the, today's the day I'm going to go do my route. And yeah. you, you get, People, I mean, I'm sure you did the same. Like you stayed open late. If there was just a handful yeah. of you, you're like, oh, let's just turn the music up and we'll yeah. uh, we'll leave. You leave when we leave. Like it's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's kind of like again, it's like the whole community. It doesn't matter sort of what people, you know, what they do for a living, um, you know, what their background is, where they come from. You know, it's just like if they're psyched into climbing, then 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 they're welcome. You know what I mean? And like, you know, you don't even know what this guy does. I mean, this guy could be a, this guy's a professor, for example. This guy just is a high school dropout. And it's just like, you know, they're all equal as long as they're just as enthusiastic in the climate. 100%. 100% agree. It, it, it is a great equalizer. And it's, it's not about what you do outside of the climbing gym. It's about what you know, we have this thing that we came together and I don't know about you, but I played a lot of sports as a younger person and they were fun, but I didn't connect yeah. with the people the way I connected with the climbing community. And that was almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That that's, I, I think is, you know, and that's like when I look back, when I look back on the, on the whole, my whole, you know, climbing career and, and, you know, in the climbing business, like that's the real highlight 
of all of it was just the people that I got to meet. And like, you know, I've now gone off and done other things. I do other sports and, you know, I've got a, a daughter. And so I'm into different, you know, other groups of people. None of them are like the climbing community. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I think the fact that I've gotten to go out and, you know, to these other communities makes me realize, wow, I, you know, you had it pretty darn good in the climb community. So. Yeah. And, and I think when you look, and especially when we do, and when you look back and you got to be, you get to go from sort of discovering it to being a cornerstone for it. So you became like the, you became the corner shop, right? You were the cafe, you were where people went to go yeah. and do that thing and, and gather and come together. And I mean, even just rainy days in the summer, you're like, oh, you know what, today I'm going to open the gym at 11. If people come by, they can yeah. come in. Yeah. You got to be that, you got to shepherd that through and just think over the amount of time, like as you grew Joe Rockheads, how many people have come into your gym for the first time and that's their first exposure maybe to climbing. And yeah. you, if you're able to provide that environment, that's non-judgmental and that's not like, it's a very beginner friendly place in a climbing gym. And if you're able to foster that, that you, you're building a lot of positive experiences for people the first time they try a sport. You know, it's it's funny that you say that because I don't really I don't really think that it it's necessarily me who did that. Like I, you know, I almost just I I just got the snowball rolling and got a, I just pushed the little snowball down the hill and then it just picked up speed and it just became it it became far bigger than than me. You know what I mean? And I, I was just along for the ride as much as I think every everybody else. And and you know, it's almost it's like the you know, the community itself was, was the thing that kind of got, you know, spurred that along and made that, that attitude and made everybody sort of welcoming, not necessarily that I, you know, I mean, I just, I maybe nurtured it a little bit, but, but it's really, I, I, I can't take any credit for it. But what you get is that you get that circular relationship where, because like, as you say, like I just started the ball rolling, but people kept it going. And then every time it came back to you, you kept it going. You never were like, I've had enough or we're big enough or I don't need to do this. So every time you take a step and decide to do the next thing, you're giving that community the opportunity to bring it back and say, yeah, that was cool. Let's do more of that. And I think just the, like there's Bob, there's a lot of gyms in Canada, and yeah. I think that the fact that you know the way that you've chosen to stay involved and the way that you know Rockheads ran, it you it can't just be another climbing gym because you did. I mean, think I, I, it's interesting to me, and I was gonna come talk about this later, but it's interesting to me that you chose to sponsor Sean McCall. So, you know, he doesn't climb at your gym, but you saw that as somebody that you wanted to support and stay connected to. And that's the kind of thing that keeps the community rolling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, it's kind of like I do, I did, I, not now that we're talking, but I did make certain choices, I think that, you know, because I, I, having had the first gym and realizing, well, this works, um, you know, I thought, okay, well, this could work elsewhere. But then, and I kind of thought, oh, well, I, you know, and I, I guess I had the opportunity and, and knew I had the opportunity. I could build one of these all over the place and I'd have a, you know, a huge, you know, conglomerate of them. But, but I, you know, consciously chose not to do that because I didn't want to, that wasn't my goal was to, to, you know, to make a whole bunch of money. And I knew that at that, that would be a cost that I then wouldn't be able to climb myself. 
right? Which wasn't worth, and that, was that wasn't ever the goal. The goal was always to have a place where you could go climbing, and guess what? The rest of you can come too. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that's you know that's part of that 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 was a big conscious decision, um, you know. And and you know to go back to like talking about about Sean, it's somewhat like it's a you know it's like the whole climbing comp scene as well. You know, uh, as you know, like most, most climbing comps, you'd lose money on or you'd lose your shirt on it. But <laughs> I, I felt it was, you know, I had a climbing gym and I was, you know, certainly at the, at the beginning, I was the only one. So it was really my responsibility to put these on, whether they made money or, or not. And um, that went on for quite a, you know, a long time. And, every, you know, I certainly every time I put on a climbing comp, I was like, that's it. I'm never doing another one. This one's. <laughs> this is no. that's such a common thread from so many people. I mean, even when I was talking to Luigi a couple of weeks ago, he was just like, "I keep. I have short memory. That's yeah. why I keep hosting competitions." Yeah, that's why. But you did. You, did. you took on a responsibility. Yeah, you know, but but it's and so that I I, I do feel like it's great to, you know, you want to give back, and I think, you know, it's. And, and taking a look at, at Sean, you know, you know, we had sponsored a bunch of local people and, you know, just kind of help them out, like giving them free memberships, trying to a little bit of travel expenses. You know, a lot of that was, again, was just, you know, try and, you know, make their lives a little bit easier. And so when it came to Sean, like just, I just had this idea, like, I mean, I just saw some you know, Twitter thing about him or something. I hadn't even talked to him in the longest time at that, at that point in time. And it just dawned on me, like this guy's really, you know, on the cusp of something really big. And he's, you know, if he was European, he would have all the support. Right. But, but he, he doesn't. And I thought, geez, really, he needs some support. Somebody needs to do something. And then I just kind of thought, you know, maybe I should, you know, you know, I should come up and, and do something. And then I kind of, I kind of thought like, you know, how I would portray it. And, 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 and I kind of thought, yeah, this is a real win-win for everybody. And I thought, you know, it, you know, it maybe put him to the next level. You know, I'd get a bit of advertising back out of it. And I think, thought it would be pretty, you know, pretty good, uh, you know, a decent advertisement. And he, at the time, actually, the World Cup was coming here as well. Mm-hmm. So I knew that that actually kind of helped, that helped out as, you know, for me. Um, and yeah, I think so. Like it was really, it really ended up being a, you know, a, a good idea that, to, 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 and I think, you know, now he's going to the Olympics and I think that, that, that really makes it all worthwhile to me. You know, you know and I, I feel like I've, I've helped somebody to make it, to get to the Olympics and be a world champion. And that to me is like, you know, super, super satisfying. Like Absolutely. Really you know, that, you, you know, you made, if I did just a tiny sliver of, of help to make them get to there, then I feel like it's all worthwhile. Yeah. And I think, and you stack all those things on top of each other. And, and, you know, as you, we go back to this hosting competitions is not, um, it, it almost became a responsibility because you, I mean, you were born from competition. Like you, I know that you've been around like when you, you were at, I think the first snowbird comp. So you, you understood so competitions I, and climbing together. I saw it on television, though. Right. Actually, before I even had anything to do with rock climbing, I remember seeing it on TV, and I watched the whole thing thinking, that's really cool. I'd like to try that one day. You hosted comps 
almost probably almost as soon as the gym opened. I remember we were talking just when, earlier about the wall crawl and the Eastern Canadian climbing championships. And those were like strings of small comps that kind of strung together. And that culminated in, in you deciding to host the 2001 nationals, which as a, most people would agree, that's the reboot. That's sort of, that's the first nationals for bouldering. Yeah. Um, I mean, that must, that's a big decision. Like how did you decide that, you know what, I'm going to host and I'm, we're going to call it nationals and we're going to see what happens. You know, I think uh, we had done so many roped routes at that point. Um, and I think it was really, you know, bouldering certainly like had, was just sort of starting. I mean, I can't say it was starting out. It was always around, but as comps, it was just starting to sort of take take hold and gain a bit of momentum. So we thought, like, let's do a, a, a you know a bouldering uh, comp. And uh, I had thought, you know, it was when it just started out small. And I thought, well, you know, if we're going to do one, why not do one bigger? Uh, you know, <laughs> that's it's a theme. But I think that's a theme when you both like I could build something in my garage. Or I could go move to Toronto and rent a warehouse and build a climbing gym. So, yeah, we could do something small, but. That's the story of my life, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So many other things I've done that that go along that same sort of theme. Um, You know, and and it's because really, you know, like the amount of work you're going to put into it's not a lot bigger. And, and, and if I wanted, if I'm going to do something, I'd like to do a really good job of it. So, you know, to put on the nationals. Um, I had Grip Magazine helping me out at the time, and they sort of, uh, you know, they sponsored it, and so they wanted to, a lot of exposure. So that I think that made it a little bit a bit easier for us. Uh, coincidentally, at the time, also, I, if, I don't know if you recall that Tim Fairfield had competed for Canada, I do. and so he um, owed the Alpine Club a favor. And so he came up and he helped root set and he had done world cups in you in, in uh, Europe and actually done really well in them. So he was pretty experienced and at the time, so that kind of like all the pieces kind of fell together. Um, you know, and, and I had done a bunch of rope nationals as well. And the Alpine club at the time was the sanctioning body, you know, I had a good reputation. They knew that I would do a good job of it. And so they were like, yeah, go do it. We, we, we want one. And so it was just like, okay. And, uh, you know, that's ironic. That's the first time I ever met Sean because Sean, I remember was just a kid. He was 13 at the time. And, you know, he saw that, okay, they're having this, this Boulder nationals and wanted his mom to take him. And I remember meeting his mom for the first time as well. And this little tiny kid coming out and, you know, he certainly impressed everybody, even though he was as small as he was. And I thought, geez, that kid's going to, that kid's going to. That kid's going to be somebody someday. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's the, you know, that's sort of the story. It's just like, you know, if you're going to do it, might as well do, do it big and, you know, and, and do a good job of it. And it was an excellent, and I, I mean, I've been to a lot of comps over the years and I remember, maybe I just have a bit of a rose colored memory. I remember it being a really well-run comp. Like I remember being on time. I remember having like ISO was great. I like the boulders were fantastic. A ton of people came and watched finals. Like it was a really good comp. I remember it was a great show. And and one thing that it makes me, I remember now is we had a guy who, um, 
ran a gymnastics club. And so he uh, loaned us all the big high jump mats that they had. So we had all these super high ball problems. So yeah, big, we did. The air, the air was crazy. I remember people taking um, falls and it was really, I remember, and I got it, this, this really came, comes down to Tim, actually. A lot of credit goes to him is, is he made these really super, super dynamic problems. Whereas we had originally kind of were setting them more like a, like a, like a root comp where it was, you know, uh, the moves were somewhat conservative. And, uh, you know, Tim was just like, no, people can keep going. They can go over and over and over. And you want to make it so that there's like big air. People are taking big falls. And I remember like it coming down to, I think, the Deem one or something like this. Yeah. And I think, yeah, just coming down to like the final try, this big dyno to this this plate and and it's like feet him being completely horizontal like trying to latch this hold in the last attempt with a few seconds to go you know he latched it for the win and and it was like it you know couldn't have been written better it no was, it could have been written better and and it was that you know the fact that you had you know international i mean they just happened to have international competitors you had this cachet of people who knew timmy fairfield knew that that was a big deal um People traveled like I came. I had already moved. I came back from Calgary, um, yeah. and you know, met with all the people that I used to climb with all the time. And it was a big deal. You had Dan Podgy, right? They came from Vancouver. Yeah. So yes. you you ended up getting this sort of perfect mix, and it was you're right. Like the the boulders were fantastic, and the it was a it was something that really solidified. And I think even if it had been an absolute train wreck, it, it, people would have been remembered like that was really great. Let's do that again. Yeah. And I think I just I think it's really, really interesting and really cool that you got to kick that off and be the spark that said we can do bouldering nationals too. And then you hosted the next year as well. And I don't know if you've hosted one since. You know what we did? We did that second one and then we did I think we had three or four years off where we and then we did another. And that was the last one, I think. Yeah. But then Jim's changed, right? So Jim's, yeah. I mean, you, you've now seen, and I think this probably is a, a good a transition as any, is that you, Joe Rockhead's managed to continue to thrive, even though it, you know, eventually wasn't the biggest climbing gym in Toronto anymore. And I think that's a testament to your ability to keep people coming back because of the community that gets built there. And it, it's, was it interesting for you to watch new gyms come into the city like is there a sense of stress that comes along with that or is it just more of a, a you're happy with the growth i mean it's, it's always stress actually i gotta tell you that's probably the worst part of the whole you know business is that you've got something established it's churning along um and then all of a sudden somebody else got, you know built another one and so that's sort of your piece of the pie they're taking you know they're whittling away and so it's it's a death by a thousand cuts, so to speak. And and I also think like, you know, with the wall building, you know, certainly like when we first started out, you had to, finding a building was always very difficult. I mean, it still is, but nowadays I think, you know, it's at the scale where people are building buildings for them. You know what I mean? And, and there's all these big structures like with Waltopia, um, you know, and uh, sort of, you know, making cookie cutter gyms. And, you know, Waltopia's financing, owning parts of them. The way that it works is completely 
different for the gym owner, I think, and I don't think necessarily for the better. You know, I was fortunate that, you know, I could start small and never really got myself into any in, into any debt. Uh, so and then I could build build as 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 need be. Whereas nowadays, I mean, think of you're going to build a climbing gym from scratch. I I can't even. Uh, I would be frightened to think of the you know how many millions you need. To yeah, you need a million dollars. Going. Like that's your that's your barrier to entry is a million bucks. Yeah, for sure. And and you know you're nobody's got that in their pocket, so they're paying interest on that. And you know it's like again to me like it's like Waltopia's got it figured out because they're building you the wall, they're financing you the money. You know they're getting it on both ends, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, the whole the whole industry itself has completely completely changed in, in so many ways. Uh, you know, long from you know what we were just talking about, like it's a small climbing community. That's that's long gone, and uh, and you know it's now you know birthday parties and yeah. <laughs> but you kind of have this ecosystem of smaller communities at each gym because people are pretty loyal to one or two gyms. Um, I know when you, especially when you look at something like Montreal where the traffic's so bad, um, a new gym opens up on your side of yeah. the highway, you go there because be, it, yeah. it takes you an hour less to get there. So we still, we have these smaller communities that settle at each gym. But I think the, the core of what makes being part of that large climbing family I mean, yeah. it's keeping that core community feel going where people are hanging out. And now you have gyms with coffee bars and you can have a beer after. So now you're like, oh, let's stay. So I think we yeah. we still have that really strong sense of what's important about why we got into this sport. Well, I think that's kind of just, you know, part of climbing itself, being an individual, somewhat like an individual sport, but also like a group activity so to speak, uh, you know, and you're not necessarily competing against anybody. Nobody wins, nobody loses, that kind of a thing. And it's just, you know, it's just friends sort of hanging out. That's what's great about bouldering in particular, right? That's, I think, what makes bouldering so popular. It's just like it's just you're having a session. You're just hanging out with people. Somebody else wants to join in and try that problem? Yeah, come on. Give it a go. Here, no, use the orange foothold. Don't use that. That You know, I mean, everybody's happy to to, and that's just the sort of the nature of it. And I think, you know, people who are brand, who are new to it, it just, you know, they just, if that's what they're into, they just fall into it along with everybody else, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's not necessarily like, you know, like the other team sport types of things, which is, you know, again, what, what part of what, you know, appeals to me about climbing is it's just, you know, so different than a team sport. And yeah, and I, I think most people that you talk to that have joined and, and stayed with the sport will counter it against something else they did and say that it's not like the other things they did. It's, it, they, everyone compares it to something else because it's, so, it's unique. There's nothing else like it, I guess, really. Uh, you know, and I think like the fact that, you know, you're, if you're like root climbing, you know, you're, cl you're climbing a 5'9 and you finally get down a couple of five nines and really what do you want to do you want to climb five ten you know what i yeah. mean it, it's like this addictive carrot that's always there with the grading system or you know you can finally you've done a v9 and now okay i'm gonna maybe i'll try that v9 and you do that one and then you know then you think you know what maybe v10 is possible right it's the blessing I, and the curse is that there you 
there is no end to the rainbow. No. It just keeps moving out. <laughs> the scale just moves in it. Yeah, it never ends. And I think that's what, you know, that's what's so addictive to it, uh, you know, and, and it's not like, you know, it's not a win or a lose day, you know. You didn't come fifth. You didn't, you know, you, well, you did that problem on th in three tries where, you know. I can only think that golf must be the same, where it's like you're really trying to just shoot, you know, you know, I'm trying to get under 90 or something like that. You know what I mean? Where really you're not necessarily trying to beat the other per person. You're just trying to do the best, you know, have the best round possible for yourself. Yeah, and you have to find joy in the process because you're never going to beat, you're never going to beat the game. The game no. is always going to stay ahead of you because it's, I mean, it's, the game is designed to be better than you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just like, yeah, going out there and having a good day and, and things coming together and, you know, and, and, and then there's this, you know, with the, the grading scale, there's a scale that measures it. Like there's a bit of a yardstick there. So you can say, yeah, I am getting better. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which is like, you know, and if you've taken time off and you go back, then that yardstick's also brutally honest with how much fitness you've lost, right? It's very honest. It's it's unrelenting in its honesty. <laughs> it's like, oh, remember when you were good? No, not anymore. You're no longer good. Um, and I, I think it's one thing I like to 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 talk about too is it's you cannot wander up to um, Rafa Nadal and say, hey, do you want to go? you know, hit some balls around, but you can walk up to the hardest boulder problem in the world and give it a try. Just there yeah. waiting for you. So the, yeah. the, there is no celebrity barrier. And even I think in terms of people who you would consider famous climbers um, tend to be very accessible and very approachable. And I'm sure you've met over the years. I know you've competed internationally a little bit. I think um, you've probably climbed with some, like people that we would also say are, you know, grandfathers of competition climbing. And you know, I, it's, it's funny. I like, certainly when I climbed in competition, you know, there's certainly like, you only saw people in magazines. We certainly didn't have the internet. This is free internet. That's how old mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, and so that they had, you know, or there was videos, you know what I mean? Like uh, Ben Moon and, you know, and those, those guys. Uh, and, and so if you were at a crag or at a comp and, you know, you were, you were a little starstruck by those, those guys, but, you know, then, you know, they were always friendly. Everyone is super friendly. I mean, you know, you know, like I've gone golfing with, with, with Jerry Moffat, for example, um, you know, and a funny story that I've got too, which is, is great, is like I was telling you earlier about going, uh, watching Snowburn on television. And this is long before I climbed, knew anything about it. And I remember, um, I remember a few of the characters and there was a, a young American, upcoming American kid there that was living in a tent, married to some French girl. And he had made it to the finals and he was trying to, you know, do well so he could pay, get some money and, and, you know, so he could keep going or whatever. And it ended up, it was Scott Franklin. And I remember this guy as, as, his, as, um, you know, uh, I knew, remembered his name and, and lo and behold, maybe five, six, seven years ago, I, uh, you know, used to go to snowbird and compete in snowbird as well. And just, you know, start off, you know, lucky if I could, you know, not, you know, get, 
get out of the top 100 or something like that. <laughs> as long as you could get to the second draw, it was you yeah, were doing all right. Draw, but then I, you know, I ended up getting better and better. And then, you know, one year I ended up making uh, Snowbird, the finals of Snowbird. And I remember like, you know, sitting in the lodge, sitting on the couch and I'm reading like a, a car racing magazine or some kind of thing like this. And this guy coming over and talking to me like, oh, we'll talk about car the car racing and anyways it it turns out it's scott franklin and you know scott franklin and then i i you know started talking to him about you know i used to race motorcycles beforehand so he was like super enthusiastic about like oh my god you used to do that, that you know race he's more excited that you raced motorcycles exactly. than you are that he's like a top level international competitor it's exactly. like i'm just like but hang on a minute i'm thinking to myself you're scott franklin you're Scott Franklin. Who cares about me? But mm -hmm. but that's the way it is, right? It's just like the community, even at all levels. You know, people are people were you know always so friend so friendly. I mean, I mean, I can think of so many times like being being places and just being so starstruck by <laughs> starstruck by people. But then they all just you know, I remember like once standing on these stairs at, at a World Cup and Stefan Globos walks up and we're kind of like all there with our mouths wide open, going, "Oh my God!" It's, and then him just going hi hi guys you know it's just like yeah, he's just like hey we're like yeah. he's it's almost like people were there wasn't enough like intern there wasn't enough consistent media to make people think they were bigger than their sport and i think people still aren't like i've been you know lucky enough to be a part of the world cups that were here um and you know hanging out at the block shop open with the climbers like, going to the pub with yeah. some of the best climbers in the world who are like now just immediately the people at your table. There is zero pretense. I've yeah. yet to come across a climber that is carrying around any type of pretense. And um, Alex Magos came to Canmore a couple of years ago and yeah. just immediately integrated him into the community. Like nobody that met him or climbed with him. He was like, Hey, I want to go to this crag and I need people that can show me the crag. And you think yeah. this is, this doesn't happen in other sports. You don't get to meet your heroes and have them basically just want to climb and yeah. not be like, Hey, you need to walk around and, and treat me like I'm I mean, Adam Andre came to Canmore, you know? So yeah. Josh has climbed with Adam Andre and he's like, yeah, he's a pretty good dude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I met him at, when he came to the World Cup. Just super friendly. You know, if you didn't know who he was, you would just like, yeah, whatever. Just an average dude, you know? Yeah. I mean, like well, the, last, the World Cups they had here, they everyone came to, to our gym beforehand. So there was people who came in, you know, I didn't necessarily always know who they were, right? Because they were, they were European. Uh, but just, you know, I knew like, oh, okay, they're, they've always got team jackets on. That's how I yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Them. Oh, and they're very good. <laughs> and then you're like, yeah, they're very, very good. Okay, Do yeah. Well, it's funny. And I also, I, I knew Udo from years and years ago, too. And then Udo, Udo showed up, too. So he was he was a good guy because he and I are the same age and could, like, <laughs> you can you know, talk about the old days, right? So. Yeah, he's an interesting, a very interesting, interesting person, and, and especially in terms of the way that he's trying to progress uh, his understanding of movement and getting other people yes. to work through that. You know, taking it to a different level from what we're at. Yeah, I mean, agreed. I and, and some of that is that population, you know, density, the ability to travel uh, without having to take you know, an entire day just to go from one side to the other. And you have this availability. I, I remember being 
blown away the first time I went and climbed in Europe. I was like, this is insane. There are families here. This is like yeah. going skating on the canal, you know, or going yeah. to the roller rink on Saturday. There are hundreds of people here yeah. at an outdoor climbing area. And, it, and when you start to get that understanding of what the global growth looks like um, and you, you get a bit jealous because, I mean, I, I think it's, it's funny that, or maybe it's appropriate that you, you grew up in Ontario. It's not like Ontario was a hotbed of climbing, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not the place you go. Um, so maybe that's, you know, some of that necessity, you're like, oh, there's not a lot of options, so I'll open a climbing gym, but it's not like you were bred out of, you know, the hotbed of, of climbing in Canada even. So imagine if you, like, imagine in different circumstances, you know, how would your climbing career have turned out differently if you had chosen to, moved to Sheffield in 1995 instead of, say, in Toronto, you know? Well, it would have been completely different. There's no question. And I think, you know, even like when you go to Europe and, and you see, you know, I mean, it's even living here and, you know, you think, oh, geez, I'm getting pretty good. And <laughs> go there and you go see all those families and you realize that, you know, everybody and their mom can climb as hard as you or better. Um, it is quite a humbling experience. And I think, you know, perhaps had, you know, I lived elsewhere, then I probably would have gotten swallowed up into that uh, and just climbed, right? Uh, certainly there would be no climbing gym. I would have, you know, uh, you know, gone off and done, done, you know, just regular, regular climbing. And, you know, perhaps, you know, got, I, I would assume the information that you would have got for tra training living in Europe or living elsewhere, you would have gotten so much better. There's no, there's no two ways about that. And you're the standards, because I certainly find that, that, you know, when, when starting in a, in a small community, like, like particularly when I was around here, if you could climb 513, there's only a handful full of people around here who could climb 513. So you thought, okay, well, I'm getting pretty good. And then, you know, uh, let's say everybody climbed 513A and then, you know, you climbed 513B or 513C and you were really one of the best. It wasn't much impetus to keep, almost keep going. And then I found like as soon as you went to Europe and you realized, well, everybody climbs 513C in Europe. Um, it just kind of reset your, your idea of just what's hard, what's difficult and what's possible. And I, I like certainly with my first time going to Europe, I, when I returned, I could immediately climb much better. Just I think it just reset my thoughts as like, okay, that's not that hard anymore. <laughs> if you, you yeah, I mean? in, in a relative scale. And do, do you think that those that experience that you're, you chose to go and, and climb overseas and compete a little bit, did it help to grow your root setting? Did it change anything about the way you ran the gym at all, like getting an understanding of that larger exposure? Or was it? What kind of effect did it have on rockheads like you and and Joe's? I mean, growth? I the culture of the, the the business itself, it didn't really make any. Uh, it didn't change anything because I certainly, you know, I did realize that what we had was something unique. Uh, certainly, the the sort of the attitude that that we had about it, um, but but certainly as far as root setting goes, the more I climbed, the more sort of repertoire of moves that I had, the more I could, I could recreate different types of things, have different ideas of how, um, you know, 
roots would go. And I and I was con- quite conscious of that at the more I climbed and to make sure that I constantly would travel and go places because really what I was discovering there, I was actually bringing back and recreating in the gym or doing something brand new. Everybody else would, would um, you know, would, would, would benefit from it. You know, just one thing I think of, like I went to the World Cup in Birmingham, England in 95 or something like that, and I saw somebody do a knee drop. Now, knee drop nowadays is super old school, but I remember going, what was that that guy did? And somebody said, oh, it's the knee drop and explained how it worked. And, and of course, we brought that back with us. And went, oh, my goodness, there's a move that I previously to this thought was not possible or had to be so much stronger. And now I've literally discovered a new technique that has changed the way I climb, therefore, the way I set Therefore, everyone else is going to pick up this thing yeah. as well. Basically, probably two months after that, everybody in the gym was doing the knee drop. Mm-hmm. Hands down. It was probably one of our favorite moves. <laughs> you start, and then you start looking for ways that you can set roots <laughs> oh, where you course. can put a drop knee, and you're like, oh, I'm going to get you here. I can tell you, I can tell you the formula for setting the knee drop. You know? Exactly, right? It's yeah. ingrained in your brain from all those years. Um, how long did you set for at Rockheads? When did, did you when did you decide to hand it over to staff yeah, to set so roots, I, or did you always pick and pick away and set roots here and there? You know, I always did to certain degrees, depended on who you know who we had at the time helping and working there, and how good they were. Um, but certainly, as I climbed, you know, going back to often, I would set roots because I wanted to climb those. Right. You you trusted yourself to set the roots that you wanted to do. Like, you know something? I need to work on this. So I'm going to set a route with this kind of in this in, 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 you know, so a lot often, you know, some of it was, you know, still self-serving. But I also kind of like I had this sort of aesthetic, this way that things should be. And I constantly want, I mean, you know, wanted people to sort of adapt that same kind of, that same kind of feel. And I think, you know, we certainly had a reputation for how things went, how our roots were for years and years and years. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that I was real quite careful at, at, at nurturing. And, you know, it was sort of just this style. And it was also somewhat similar to the style that I, I sort of climbed in. And um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I roots that, you know, for quite a long time, I can't even think of how I stopped or, I think it was just this a slow, organic, yeah, just gradually. I mean, I can't even think, when did I stop? What, what, which route did I stop? What was it? Yeah, what was my last route? And maybe it was just a desire to go home three hours earlier. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. How many first ascents did you put up in the rock around Ontario? Like, was that part of your early climbing arc it, as well? It, was to Briefly, uh, my brother and I, Brian, we discovered a, a crag called Crag X that was out in Milton, that was sort of this steep sort of um, little, short little steep cliff. Uh, and again, you know, we had, didn't have anything like that around in Ontario. And so we wanted to climb those kinds of things. So we put a bunch of roots up. And so there's maybe a dozen, maybe 20 roots there that, that we put up. But I, I personally didn't like doing it. I like to climb them. I mean, it was to me, it was too much work to do it. I, I'll tell you though, I have so many second ascents 
over the place. Like, you know, the entire mother loaded the Red Red River Gorge. I have second ascent on basically every route there. And I Which is stuff. And then this is why I want to have these conversations because that is not in the guidebook and it's not in an article anywhere. It's like, did you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's just basically, I just waited. I just waited at the bottom for the first ascensionist to do his route. I'd be like, are you guys? Oh, he's done it. Okay, great. Okay, come on. Just leave the draws on. It doesn't even have a name yet by the time you've given it a try. Yeah. And then, I mean, my thing, I didn't really, I, I didn't really like the project stuff that much. My thing was, like, I like to do stuff that was as fast as possible. I like to on-site. And if I was, you know, if we were getting close to 10 tries, I'd be like, I, I don't, I have no interest in it. Like, I wanted to do stuff that was hard, and I wanted to do it really, really fast. That was kind of my my thing you know i can't even think of even trying something more than 10 times ever like i would just you know i'd rather i'd rather do i'd rather do you know five on sites rather than than five red point attempts and that, and it's such an interesting and people that have grown up bouldering i think don't have quite the same appreciation for the mental effort that it takes to project a route uh, especially for on a road trip and yeah. do you really want to spend two or three weeks warming up, trying the same route, going and doing something at the end of the day because you're just, you're over it and you want to try something yeah. else, but they're always yeah. way under your limit. And then going home, either successfully having done one route or yeah. none. And, and the, the, I know people would, who would still say that onsite climbing is the pure style. And people say, hey, if you can up your onsite grade, then you are really yeah. doing something different mentally and onsighting boulder problems is shockingly easy compared to onsighting routes. So I think it's a really interesting balance that so many people are so focused now in bouldering gyms and, and then still going and climbing routes outside, but a lot of people climbing boulders outside and route climbing teaches you a lot about that mental toughness of yeah. what do I, what am I prepared to do? to yeah. climb 25 or 30 meters or 40 meters of, you know, pain and suffering. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like what I really eventually liked about climbing was I, and, and particularly this is, I guess, part of what may, what I liked about comp climbing, particularly rope comp climbing is that you had to do, you had to perform at hundred percent on demand. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I can say, Oh, hang on a second. My shoe's dirty. It's not like, you know what, I'm going to wait for this power bar to digest. It's just like you had to know you had to climb at 100% right now. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a real skill to be able to take your energy and focus your energy down. And then while you're climbing, you know, the whole, while you're on sighting, it's just like I, I like the fact that it was so consuming of your consciousness that like every thought was into – you know, reading the route, what, what pace should I climb this next section at, which, what, you know, is this arm getting pumped? How do I, you know, it's just all these split second decisions that are, is this good enough? Does this need to be perfect for me to move on? Yeah. Yes. All these things that are just happening. And then, then really as you're getting pumped, it's just like that thought press just speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, speeds up until it's just too overwhelming for you to be able to control all these things. And then you you fall off not too far after, and then that that's kind of like the thing that I I liked about you know about then I would like recreate that outdoors. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and my thought was like if okay I'm gonna get on this route, um, and you know if I'm gonna project it, I'm gonna do it sooner or later. 
sooner or later, I'm going to climb this from bottom to the top. So why not do it now? Why, why not, not do it do first it? try? Just do it first go. And then you know what? Then you can go climb that one instead <laughs> of come back here tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so that's like if, if uh, I certainly thought like, you know, if, if you're not ready to meet, if you don't mean business when you rope up, then don't rope up. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's do or die. And that's just kind of like, you know, the mentality that I ended up having, having, and that, and, you know, that's why I could go to the cliff and I'd get a whole bunch of stuff done, you know, boom, boom, boom. And, 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 you know, uh, yeah. anyway, that, and that's, that's just sort of my, the thing that I sort of adopted. And, the and I think it's really, I but I think that's really interesting because it's, it, it matters. Like we, it, we all come to, to the sport with, something that speaks to us in some way and there's an ability to find what you like about it and i know i mean you're you're in good company with people that like to climb onside steve mcclure yuji hirayama these are climbers that will say that onside climbing is the flow that is the closest to flow state that you Absolutely. get in our sport outside of competing outside of having that sort of um you know out of body finals experience where you feel like you know there's no barriers to success, but in that moment where you're saying that you're, you stop being in control of your decisions and your instincts are kicking in and you're making foot movements and you're adjusting hands, that's like, that's an addicting feeling. And you, Absolutely. yeah, red pointing gives it to you, but it's the stress of, of like, am I going to fall off at the crux for the 27th time? And red pointing is totally different. I just, I just love that that's something that spoke to you about the sport. I mean, I, that's, I've discovered that, that, you know, all the other passions that I've had in my life or, or things that, 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 that I really enjoy doing have the same component to them, that, you know, it takes your entire consciousness, you're 100% in the moment, you've got no idea what day it is, you don't know what's going to have for supper, you don't know what other pro troubles you've got, you're just 100% focused on that thing you're doing whether it be for, you know, however long it takes and, 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 you know, then, then eventually you're done, you come that you're, you know, you come down the rope and you're back down on the, the ground with everybody else. And now you're talking about, Oh, let's go get coffee or something. Do you know what I mean? But, but there was this 10 minutes of you were just in your own little world, a hundred percent in your brain and in your brain working at its maximum capacity. And that's, you know, that's what, that's what I love about climbing. And you, there's zero chance that you didn't instill that in other people just by the nature of you being in your gym and having that philosophy and mentality and talking to people. And so, you know, you've probably inspired lots of other people to look at that part of climbing and say, okay, that's, that's something I hadn't occurred to me other than just coming to the gym every week and trying to do the next 510 and saying, wait a minute, I was talking to Bob and he was like, no, onside climbing is this, this, and this. And you think maybe I'll give that a try. So you, by being sort of a, a constant in that climbing community, you get to, you know, express the things that you love about the sport to so many other people. And I think that other gym owners or long time, you know, gym managers or root setters that are type of root setter that are out on the floor would agree that that experience of sharing what you love about it um, has got to be really rewarding. Well, I would, I think so. I think, you know, I certainly like, like even my, like root setting standard, even just the way I do stuff, I, I'm happy to share with people because, you know, I'm, I get all jazzed up about it. And I like to talk about stuff. It's just like, you know, 
my wife and my daughter, if I get on to something like this, just roll their eyes. I don't like. <laughs> They're like, oh my goodness, let's do something else for a while. You know, but for people, you know, for people who, who are into it, like I'm happy to always discuss it. And that's just like a, the way I work is just always analyzing, thinking about, about stuff like that. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, like in the later years when I went to, to Boulder comps, and just saw people I would you know not everybody always knew who I was but whatever but I would always you know try and give my my thoughts and on, on how to do stuff and how to mentally think about it and and that kind of thing and and I mean certainly I love the you know if people want to listen I'm happy to, to tell them and people should listen like I you know did you still spend do you go by the gym very often I I since since I sold it, I haven't been there very much at all. And even in the last couple of years, I, I, I haven't that much. I think part of part of me is just like Luigi has taken it and I kind of am purposely keeping a distance. You know, it's not mine anymore. And uh, those guys are doing a really, really good job. And I kind of want to keep the separation. I do think, though, that, you know, Certainly, once this isolation is over, I'm going to sort of make a bit more of an appearance to come back uh, because it's a community that I, I miss. And, um, you know, so, no, I haven't been there, you know, that much. And again, like I said, when I do show up, nobody knows who I am anyway. <laughs> I mean, I feel it's like that there should be a, a, a larger than life poster of you like on the back wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But that's what that's kind of a little bit also what I I I I I, I like to take the you know be somewhat in the background you know a little bit even when I ran it uh, I didn't want me to be the main you know I kind of like to be like you know the Wizard of Oz the guy behind the curtain pulling the strings mm -hmm. so to speak people didn't necessarily know know that it was me which is part of I guess why I named it you know after after a fictitious sort of character which is kind of like you know like the advertisements that we used to do in there too they were also like sort of a creative outlet and again they had nothing to do with me personally or whatever and it's you know even you know with any facebook or things like that like i don't really have much of a that kind of a presence i don't really necessarily like to be out there as myself but i do like you know to create something and have it out there for for other people and that's a really wonderful way to break that down and say that it's not about being the face of the business. It's about having created something that other people get to enjoy. And then you're still putting in all that work to make sure that it's running yeah. smoothly and doing this and this and that. And, and I do think it's quite funny that if you, you know, that if you walked into the gym, most people wouldn't know. And I think it's in very good hands, right? And uh, you know that I think it's it's interesting that you say that you want to step back a little bit because you know it's not your gym anymore. But I would argue that it will always be your gym. What Joe Rockheads represents is a really important time in the growth of climbing in Canada. 